This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Caleb, Caleb, Sam, Tim, and Benton. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. It's time to get serious with a couple of serious questions. We have questions this episode from Caleb and Caleb. And yes, I'm talking about two different Caleb's here. I'll let you guess which is which. First, here's Caleb's question. How many confessions and creeds do you think there are? Well, I don't know how many. There's definitely a lot. But you're asking how many I think there are. So I'm going to guess and say at least a hundred, probably more, maybe a lot more. But let me tell you the ones I think are essential for you to know about. First, there are the so-called ecumenical creeds. Now, these are statements of faith that come from the early church, usually from a council meeting of all the church leaders. Now, the reason that they're called creeds, by the way, is that they often will begin with the Latin word credo, which means I believe. The Apostles' Creed is probably the most famous, and we use that in worship quite frequently. And there's the Nicene Creed, which came from a couple of church councils in Nicaea during the 300s. And this one is essential because it lays out the Bible's doctrine of the Trinity. Also important is the Athanasian Creed, which teaches the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus in depth. And in the 400s, there's also the Chalcedonian Definition, which we use at least once a year in worship. And that teaches about the two natures of Christ, who is fully human and fully God. So those are four essential creeds, the Apostles, the Nicene, the Athanasian, and the Chalcedonian. So now let's look at confessions of faith, which are like creeds with a lot more detail. Now, these emerge especially during the Reformation when the church is trying to sum up all the essentials of biblical doctrine. Now, for us, the essential confession of faith is, of course, the Westminster Confession, which is the last great confession of the Reformational Age, which came about in the 1640s. Now, this incorporates everything that came before it. So, all of the best of ancient church theology, the best of medieval theology, and of course the best of the Reformation from 1517 into the 1640s, all of it finds its expression in the Westminster Confession. This incorporates, you might think, like the best of everything that went before, and so it's become the standard reference for theology. After this, we kind of lost our habit of making good biblical confessions of faith, although there are confessions that come after the Westminster that are, in some cases, good. But for us, the Westminster Confession is our confessional standard. Now, before the Westminster, there was the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort from the 1500s and then the early 1600s. And these are all excellent 
resources for good theology. Now, everything great expressed there is also going to be found in the Westminster Confession, but it's still really good to be familiar with these earlier confessions as well. So that's four main confessions of faith to keep track of, the Westminster, the Belgic, the Heidelberg, and Dort. So that's four creeds and then four confessions. Of course, there are many, many more out there. But with these four creeds and these four confessions, you have a really great starting point for understanding the essentials of Christian teaching. And now another question from another Caleb who asks this about Titus chapter 1. What is a lazy glutton? Well, to refresh everyone's memory, in Titus chapter 1, which Dan Reed preached on recently, the Apostle Paul quotes a prophet of the Cretans who gives a very unflattering portrait of the people of this island. They're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, in our sister podcast, The Commentary, I talked to Dan about his sermon on Titus 1, and we discussed this very quote. So if you want more about that, you can go and listen to The Commentary. Now here, the Apostle Paul appears to be quoting a Cretan poet named Epimenides. And he wrote these words hundreds of years before Paul was writing his epistle. Apparently, the island of Crete had a really bad reputation in the ancient world, which made it a challenging place for Titus to spread the gospel and plant a church. He had to confront the people of Crete about their sins, and these were sins that everyone on the island really regarded as normal. Pastors these days face a similar challenge in our culture today. Because there are a lot of things in our culture that the Bible says are sin, but we accept as normal. Now, the phrase that's translated here, lazy glutton, in Greek is gasteres arge. And there's a little clue there in the sound of the first word, uh, gasteres. In English, when we talk about the world of food, that's called gastronomy. So, when you think of gluttony, think of overindulgence, especially in food. The word in Greek literally refers to the belly. So the appetites of the belly, the desire to fill your stomach, if you overindulge in that, that's gluttony. A good way to think of gluttony might be overconsumption. So a glutton is a person who consumes much more than he needs because he doesn't exercise self-control. He lets hunger, uh, a sinful desire for more and more, rule over him. Now, laziness goes with this kind of gluttony. Instead of being productive and contributing, the lazy person is unproductive and, and only consumes. So, when you think about it, our culture probably has a lot in common with the world that Titus lived in. We bend the truth to suit our own desires, our own political factions. We condone and even celebrate what God says is evil. And we consume and consume so much more than we create. Now, the good news is, the same gospel that brought liberation to Crete can free us from our bondage to sin, too. Now it's time for the big question. 
This week's big question comes from Sam. And we've had a lot of good questions about the Bible in the past few weeks, and now Sam poses another fascinating inquiry. If we found another letter that Paul wrote, would we add it to the Bible? Well, to get to the bottom of this question, we need to start with another question, which is this. Are there letters that Paul wrote which are not included in the Bible? Well, the answer to this is yes. Paul himself mentions these other letters, and we don't have them. They're not in the Bible. They're not anywhere else. So they've not been preserved over time or included in the Scriptures. So the letters exist. So let's imagine for a moment. Let's say that some archaeologists are digging around in some caves somewhere in the Holy Land, and they find one of these epistles. What's this, they ask? Paul's second epistle to the Ephesians? A second book of Romans? A third epistle to the Corinthians? Well, we have to print some new Bibles and add this newly discovered work, right? Well, wait a minute. Not so fast. Before we start adding to God's book, we need to remember what it is that makes a piece of writing biblical in the first place. The letters weren't included in the Bible just because Paul wrote them. The Bible isn't a greatest hits of Paul anthology. The reason that a book is in the Bible is not its human author. The reason is that it is God-breathed. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, not everything that Paul wrote, or Peter, or Matthew, or Moses was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And only what was inspired was preserved by the Spirit over time, and then received as Scripture by the Church. Now, that means that if we discover a letter of Paul's that isn't in the Bible, even if it could be proved that this letter was authentic, We wouldn't just add it to the Bible. In fact, we don't have the power to add it to the Bible. That's something the Holy Spirit would have to do, and the Spirit has already finished that work. Which brings us to another interesting question. If the Holy Spirit is still working in our lives today, why aren't we getting new Scripture and adding new books to the Bible all the time? Well, in the Westminster Confession, we find that the Spirit works in two ways where Scripture is concerned. He inspires and he illuminates. Inspiration is what happened when the original human authors, filled with the Spirit, wrote down the Word of God. Now, that process lasted for thousands of years, but it was finally completed when Jesus came. And now there's nothing left for God to reveal With Jesus, the mystery has been revealed. But the Spirit continues to illuminate or shine light on the Scripture, helping us receive it as God's Word and helping us understand what it teaches. That is part of the Spirit's ongoing work in us. And there's something else the Spirit does related to Scripture. Preservation. The Spirit guards the Scripture and passes it down so that it isn't lost. Now, sure, many human documents, good ones, have been lost. And the letters of Paul that we don't have in Scripture are a good example of this. But what hasn't been lost is the inspired Word, because the Spirit preserves it. 
Now, I don't think we're ever going to discover a true lost epistle of Paul. But if we did, I think it would be safe to say that that book is not inspired. Because if it had been inspired, it would have been preserved. Now, if you're curious about questions like this, there's a name for this topic, canonicity. A lot of books have been written about the canon of Scripture, what makes a book inspired, how did we arrive at the 66 books of the Bible, and so on. It's a complicated and fascinating story, but of course, with the big questions, it always is. Now let's shift gears and have a little fun with this week's fun questions. We have one from Tim and one from Benton. They both share a common theme, which is color. First, Tim asks, what is your favorite color? Oh no, another question about favorites. You know how hard it is for me to settle on a single favorite of anything. There's so many good colors, it's impossible to settle on just one. Plus, Your favorite color of car might be different from your favorite color shirt or your favorite color shoes. Could you imagine driving a silver car and wearing a silver shirt and wearing silver shoes? You'd look very, very silver. But yes, silver is probably my favorite color for a car, although British racing green is pretty close. Blue is my favorite color for a shirt, I think, and uh, my favorite color for shoes is probably brown, but I really like red and gray a lot as colors too. It's just impossible to choose. Now, Benton is curious about my hair color. He asks, have you ever dyed your hair? If yes, what color? Well, Benton, the fact is I've never dyed my hair. The brown that you see is my natural color though it's getting naturally grayer and whiter over time. If I was going to dye my hair, I don't think silver or British racing green would really be options. What do you think I should go for? Platinum blonde? Jet black? Bright orange? Now, I do have a funny story about hair color. One time, Lori was getting her hair done, and she had the hairdresser weave in a strand of purple hair. So she had this long purple streak down one side just for fun. A little girl who saw this asked, why is your hair turning purple? And Lori, without skipping a beat, said, because I'm turning into a Muppet. The little girl's eyes got very wide, and she was super excited to see what kind of Muppet Lori would become. Well, personally, I'm happy not being a Muppet, so I think I'll stick with my natural color for the foreseeable future. After all, it's changing on its own and totally for free. Well, today happens to be Father's Day, so in addition to enjoying the big question, I hope you'll also say happy Father's Day to your father, and thank you for spending this time exploring the big questions with me. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.